Hey, it's my privilege to read the scripture for you as well as preach the word this morning. And so I'd like it if you would turn with me to our passage, which is 1 Peter, starting in chapter 2, verse 11, through the end of the chapter, which is verse 25. So 1 Peter 2, 11 through 25. And if you've got a, a, a book form Bible, notice that it's pretty far in the back. If you've got an app, go ahead and, and dial that in because we're gonna be going through this this morning. So, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. And God, I ask that you would be with us as we study your word this morning. And I ask that wherever the person listening to this is, that you would draw their hearts toward yours, that you would incline their thoughts toward you. And I pray that through your word would come a clear call to what they ought to be pursuing and doing next. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, it's, uh, as I said, my privilege to be with you to preach today. And uh, I have to say that this is an amazing passage and it's rich in meaning and it's also very difficult. And so I, I hope that you'll uh, be prepared to be challenged as well as uh, to, to hear what God has to say. So the title of this sermon is Temporary Residence because that's the key to this passage. And really the key to this passage is the one that Tim preached last week. Uh, it's funny, this week I got home after a long work day and 
Karen was watching the old TV show 24. It was at the start of season six and Jack Bauer emerges from a plane. He's hunched over, he's got handcuffs on, he's got long hair, he's got a big old beard. Um, might be longer than Tim's. And we were like, oh, it's Jesus Bauer. And only to find that the setup for that season is Jack had been pulled out of torture in one place to be put in torture another place where he was gonna be killed in exchange for a bunch of other people living. Hey, so his deal to bring peace, uh, we haven't gotten very far through it, but so far it doesn't look super successful. Nobody involved in that transaction was honest or righteous, which seems like a good time to say, hey, if you're enjoying our content, like crisp analysis of a 13-year-old TV show, please click that subscribe button in YouTube. Click the bell next to the subscribe button to get notifications whenever we add new content. And of course, click the like button and share these videos with people who you think will benefit from them. So let's go back into the text before I do any more things that Naomi should be doing. Dear friends, Peter starts, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage a war against your soul. And dear friends, it's too friendzone-y for the underlying word. Dear friends isn't strong enough. So agapetoi, which is what the, the Greek translation says, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this word when it's talking about Abraham and Isaac, Abraham's feelings about Isaac. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, agapetoi. Paul used this language when he's addressing Timothy at the beginning of 2 Timothy in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, to Timothy, my dear son, agapetoi. There is a bond there that's important. Foreigners is also a significant word, not because of you know, language study, but because of what Peter just explained prior to this in uh, chapter two, verses nine and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what Peter is saying is, you guys have a new nation conceived in the gospel, built around Jesus with God as the planner and designer of the whole thing, according to his perfect plan. And then the word exile, exiles is interesting. Residing temporarily is what that might mean. Strangers, people who don't belong where they are, at least not permanently. All right, and then it says to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So let's look at Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. This is Paul's take on a similar kind of teaching. Let us behave decently as in the daytime not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Another apostle's take on this same kind of idea is John's version of Jesus's prayer for his disciples before his departure. And so in John 17, verses 14 through 19, he says, I have given them your word 
Jesus has given the disciples God's word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sacrificed myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So we are called to dependence upon Jesus, and we need to be made clean and new by him. We need to take on all that this new life means, including some attitudes that are harder to change. So we are cleaned on the inside by Jesus, and we clothe ourselves on the outside with Jesus. We didn't put on the Jesus clothes in order for God to accept us. We put on the Jesus clothes because he's made us new, and now we can be like him because he has made us that way. The problem is that you and I have been made new, but we're stewing in uh, chocolate frozen yogurt. The world around us continues to be broken, and that's why it's good to be a foreigner here. That's why it's good to have citizenship somewhere else, somewhere better, somewhere with a leader that's perfect. And everything that's said in this passage is a result of knowing that citizenship is secure, knowing that leader is perfect, knowing that plan isn't selfish, it's not self-driven, it is perfect. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter, interestingly, doesn't leave us the option that we're not going to be accused of doing wrong. We're going to be expected accused of doing wrong because we're foreigners, because we're citizens of another place. I had a lady completely change my attitude about money before I even really had an attitude about money. I was in college. I was in a church plant. There were hardly any of us. She seemed like an old wise woman, though I don't think she was much older than I am now. And she said, Mike, you got to take 10% off the top. You don't have a salary now, but when you are making money, you've got to do that. Was she a little legalistic about that? Yes. How did God use it? God prepared me to have a salary and realize more easily because I had thought about it before the money was in my hands that it all belonged to God and that giving him some of it I'm not advocating for 10%, that was her standpoint. Some of it was purposefully given to him, his kingdom, his service, his servants. Okay, that was how she influenced me, but I let slip that that was the case and I had an interesting response as a young worker, first job out of college, a supervisor in my group said, well, why should I give you a raise? You're just gonna spend it on the church. Didn't expect that coming. I, I wonder if I spent it on cat toys or if I spent it on gourmet croutons, whether that would have made a difference for that supervisor. I don't, I don't think he would have been offended the same way. So there are things that you're gonna see as good that other people aren't going to see as good. Bible study in the workplace was a wonderful thing, but I worked in a place where the excuse was, 
conference rooms are scarce, and it was true. But a conference room that wasn't in use, wasn't contending to be in use, if somebody used it for a Bible study with other people, some folks got very agitated. Why? Well, it's definitely not part of the company's core mission. I totally get that. All kinds of other non-core things happened in those rooms, though. There's something offensive about we as foreigners doing our thing in this land. Are there going to be people who don't buy what, what we're doing, what we're valuing? Yes. But there are also going to be people who find your claim that is an infinite personal God who knows you and cares about you, that that, that whole thing is weak, deluded, maybe even harmful. So then why live such a good life among pagans who don't appreciate it? Because some of them are still going to see Jesus in you. Some of them are going to come to know that infinite personal God because they see you caring about people in a way that's not normal, forgiving people when you wouldn't normally, and knowing that you didn't want to forgive them, and yet you were able to do so because you're following rules from a higher authority. Giving your time to people who don't obviously benefit you, and yet not justifying yourself because of what you do. Oh, I, I didn't help the people who can help me back. I helped other people. And I'm not getting my sense of worth by helping people who can't help me back. Somebody after watching last week's sermon asked me if anybody ever really asks, why are you different? In my experience, the answer is no, not very often. We don't live in a spiritually open culture for one thing. It takes a certain kind of interaction before any meaningful interaction can be had uh, on, on subjects like these. But I think the bigger thing is we're distracted from glorifying God ourselves. And so we don't live in as different a way as we think we do. What does Peter say in verse 13? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority and that's the sound of your mental brakes locking up, if you're paying attention. To every human authority? Does a list of all the historically wicked human authorities start spinning in your head like it did in mine? How could we ever do this? The answer is, for the Lord's sake. Now, if you haven't watched Tim's sermon from July 26th, now would be the time to do it. Because if you don't understand who Peter has said he's writing to, you'll never understand this. Even if you did, you'll never accept it. Tim said that Christian identity isn't a makeover, but a takeover. God making us his. And so he gets to call the shots. And he's not asking for easy things in this case. You're not your own. You have been purchased with a price. And if that's so, you don't get to call the shots anymore. And neither do I. If you think you get to decide who to respect and who to love and who to fear and who to honor, you are declaring independence from the God who knows, loves, and owns you. Okay, just thinking about this again, Peter can't possibly think that the emperor is the supreme authority, which is kind of what it sounds like. Well, here's what Paul said in Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God 
has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, there's no way you can live in a world of terrible leaders and have any hope unless that hope comes from your identity in Christ, your citizenship in his kingdom. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we talk about him periodically. He's a German theologian and a discipler of pastors who fortunately and unfortunately lived during the rise and reign of Adolf Hitler. So his argument about the invalidity of Hitler's rule basically said, look, God has established the authority of the head of a German state. And it was one that was pointing to God as the overarching authority over the nation. But instead of filling that slot, what Hitler did was said, no, I'm not that guy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a new role. And I'm going to make myself the gospel displacing deliverer of the German people. And our only hope in a world of all too human leaders comes from identity in Christ and citizenship in his kingdom. And look, all too human leaders have been a problem through the entire course of history, and that's not going away. You may have noticed. What did Bonhoeffer try to do? He tried to set up a situation in which Hitler's authority wasn't actually authority. Was he right? I'm not persuaded by his argument, but it's okay with me if he persuades you. The issue is, are you gonna be careful and am I gonna be careful that who we're actually looking to is the overarching authority of God and saying, I am willing to submit to whomever you send, knowing who you've sent in the past and why. We went through Habakkuk and found that God was purposefully sending terrible people to be in charge of Judah. It was on purpose. He had a plan in what he was doing. And so who am I to say that this leader or that leader who I don't want to respect, who I don't want to honor, who I don't want to follow, aren't there for God's purposes? I've got to be really careful when I start running off in that direction because Peter's being very clear here. Or to governors, he says, he moves down a notch in the hierarchy who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. That's verse 14. So let's see. Can anyone name a governor from the New Testament? Matthew 27, 2, they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. Luke 2.2, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Acts 23.24, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. Acts 24.27, when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, because, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So, if you look at who these governors were and what they did, you find that they didn't really, they weren't wicked men 
Not completely. They were weak in some ways. They didn't share Paul's view uh, in, in certainly some cases. They didn't understand what Jesus was up to, but they didn't want to stand up against his, his foes in the, the case of Pilate. But I wouldn't characterize these guys as punishing wrongdoers and commending rightdoers. There's an element to that, but that's not what prevails in them. So the reason that we're to honor governors is not because of the behavior of those individuals. It's their office that's important. We have to exercise this submission to authority muscle even when it goes against our grain. Why? Verse 15, it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Well, this isn't what happened in the early church. Many definitely did have their foolish talk silenced and the church grew enormously, but many others continued to say wicked things about them, false things about them, damaging things about them. But when you live under human authority as a foreigner and a stranger and don't do what's right in your own eyes, but instead do as God directs, that's gonna be noticed. It's not always gonna be appreciated. So will you silence all foolish people's ignorant talk? Unlikely. But this is what it means to be God's people awaiting the return of the only perfect leader, our King Jesus. That's really important. We're not trying to form the best government now. We can do, do everything in our power, don't get me wrong, but that's not our objective. Our objective is right now to live under our King. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. How do slaves live? Under the direction of their master. And this is the gospel. It's important to keep that in mind that we have freedom to live as God has designed. So Romans chapter 6 verses 17 and 18 says this, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You change teams. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. We haven't just been set free to live like everybody else. If you're living for money or sex or power or just getting baked and tuning out, you are missing real life. And the body of Christ is missing you. So my question is, in what areas are you wasting your life living like you did before Jesus rescued you? And I'll give you one of my answers to that question. I, years ago, took the Twitter app off my phone because I realized I was sinking too much time in it. Well, guess what? Over the years, I have gradually increased the number of tabs I have open to interesting people on Twitter's website. So didn't get away from Twitter ultimately. So I've closed those and I'm allowing myself to go. We'll see if I can handle news updates, but I was wasting hours a week keeping up with the news. I didn't need to be doing that. There was a lot more that was pouring in in addition to that. And that's a life that looks a lot more like Jesus hasn't rescued me yet. I want to use those hours for something God directs me to do. 
1 Peter 2.17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Wow. Why don't we get to exclude people from this command? Every one of us and every person you dislike, however violently, are image bearers of the Lord God. That's why. So the image of God, we've, we've got several verses uh, that, that mention it that I'm going to call out. There are more, but these are key ones. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God set out to create mankind in his own image, and he did so. In Genesis 5, 3, the image is passed from parent to child. In Genesis 9, 6, mankind continues to bear God's image after the flood. This is God's covenant with Noah. Uh, reinforces that God is still uh, imbuing humanity with his image. Colossians 3, 9, and 10 says that that image should unite us in our new selves. So God's image gets to shine more brightly and we get to enjoy fellowship more closely because it's shining more brightly because Christ has made us new creatures that demonstrate it so well, except for that old man we're dragging around, right? And that's what James 3.9 says, and yet our dead man still wants to fight back. So, so many of these things that Peter's telling us to do are hard in our time and place. Fearing God isn't something we do. We, it's, it's out of fashion. We'd like nuanced words when it comes to being uh, before God. Revere, that sounds kind of safe. Maybe just consult with, get a bumper sticker, go online and click a little thumbs up next to uh, something that might be a Bible verse or it might be Benjamin Franklin quote, really one or the other. But honoring the emperor is pretty tough too. And uh, one of the ways that I, I see that is the number of people I know who uh, found it easy to honor the last president and the number of people who found it easy to honor the current president, uh, there's not a lot of overlap there. And it's two circles and maybe, maybe the lines touch. And maybe it's just my experience, but giving honor to your political opponents it's not something we've got naturally to do. God needs to do a work there in order for us to do that. Showing proper respect to everyone is unnatural. Do you know how I know? Because we've got all kinds of problems that fall down to this basic level of proper respect. Too many people are simply unwilling <laughs> to, to admit that all police officers, all law enforcement officers bear the image of God. And at the same time, too many people are unwilling even to say the words, Black Lives Matter. And we gotta be careful when we give easy outs for ourselves, easy excuses instead of giving proper respect. So yes, there are law enforcement officers who are guilty of misdeeds, some are guilty of cover-ups. And yet, Peter, God, is calling us to give proper respect to everyone. As human beings, as bearers of God's image, they're worthy of respect. Well, and guess what? There may be an organization with the same three words as a, their title. Guess what? It doesn't matter that you may not agree with 
who they are or what their objectives are. The political stance of the organization doesn't invalidate the fact that Black Lives Matter. Why is this important? Because we've hit a level of political discourse that allows us to have such unchristlike attitudes on topics that Christ would not have been tripped up about. So let's look inside. Love for the family of believers is key because the body of Christ overcomes an enormous amount of otherness for us. So much divides humanity and our only hope on earth is our enclave of Christ's brothers and sisters. And look, I'll admit, Peter's making a really difficult case, right? Remember the world that he and Paul inhabited how they were treated. Ask yourself what assumptions you've made that we should expect that things should always get better from there. That's not the implication that either of them give to their readers. That's not the implication that Jesus gave that his, his followers would gradually experience better and better culture and society would increase in, in Christ-likeness. Now he's going to have to come to fix that. And in the meantime, practicing loving one another within the body of Christ and being consistent in who we are when we interact with outside people, this is going to be key for us. Being the same person inside the church and outside the church is fundamental. And being the same person who's under God's authority and following his instructions on how to interact with others is part of that deal, whether we want it or not. It doesn't get any easier. In verse 18, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And there go the breaks again. Reverent because of God, not because of your master. Submit because of who you are in Christ, not because slavery is good or right. This application is really a logical follow-on from submission to all authorities, uh, including all unjust authorities, which is really scary. But you're not submitting yourselves, and I don't submit myself because we're rightfully enslaved. Look at the book uh, of Genesis, the story of Joseph. It wasn't right how he came to be enslaved, and yet there he was, and God used those circumstances and his working under the authority that he had to change the course of history. Amazing stuff. You're submitting yourself to one in authority because where does all authority originate? From God himself. It's his idea. It's his authority to dish out as he sees fit. If you feel like I do, that some people shouldn't have it, you're probably right, but God has a purpose in that as well. You're not excluded from submitting yourself to that authority because that authority is unjust or wrong. Peter is calling Christians to an enormously high view of authority, one our culture doesn't share. So we gotta watch ourselves that we're not appropriating that value from culture and insisting on keeping it when Peter's confronting it again and again. This is how you are to live. Verse 19, for it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But Mike, I'm not a slave. 
Well, being a wage slave around here is kind of the norm, not the exception. So raise your hand if you feel handcuffed to a job, whatever color the handcuffs are, including golden. Okay, I, I, I can't see you through the camera, but I will say that I have felt enslaved to a job more than once in my lifetime in the Bay Area. And the fact that we get to enjoy a superior grade of slavery doesn't really make it something else. But it's also true that we have it easier than many, many generations of Christians. Many generations of Eastern Christians were enslaved when the territory that they lived in, where Christ had walked, was conquered by adherence to Islam, for example. And in some places in the world today, Christians are still enslaved, primarily because they're Christians. Verse 20, Peter says, But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. I don't want to make light of this, but when was the last time you were beaten for wrongdoing? It's important to understand that doing good will not prevent suffering. Suffering is going to come, and you have been called to endure it, and so have I. Suffering will come despite the good that you do, and sometimes suffering will come because of the good that you do. Verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So we're not doing anything that Jesus didn't do. Peter says, don't be surprised. Why would you have an easier time of it than your savior did? Paul says in Romans 8, 17, that this is our family business. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs of Christ indeed if we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Peter said in that last verse, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And here's the critical thing. The liberal religionist says, Jesus is an example and we experience fullness of life by following his model. The legalistic religionist says, Jesus is an example, and we achieve salvation by doing what Jesus did. The prosperity religionist says, Jesus is an example, and we receive all his powers and blessings today by claiming them. The Christian says, I cannot believe I have been adopted into God's family. The Christian says, central to who I am is being loved by God in Christ. The Christian says, now that God has sealed me with the Holy Spirit, I want to live the way my family lives. And Jesus is the real demonstration of what that looks like. So the Christian says, I've been adopted into God's family. He says, I am loved by God in Christ. I want to live the way Jesus did. Verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus did nothing wrong. Jesus said nothing wrong. And he was described this way in advance. Isaiah 53, uh, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 
Zephaniah 3, 12 and 13, but I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. And this is how Israel can finally live up to this covenant that it failed again and again to live up to. By those who don't just say they follow Messiah, but who do follow him, being made a new creation, and that's you and me once we're grafted into Jesus. We get the privileges and benefits of being part of his people, not having any birthright to it. Peter continues in verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He had the authority and power to cause men or angels to join his cause and strike down everyone. Really, he didn't need anybody to join. He had the power and authority to do it by himself, but he didn't lift a finger against them. He was living as a citizen of the kingdom of God, not as a reactive citizen of this natural world, because there's only one righteous judge. And as Jesus knew, he is not asleep. So Peter concludes this section with a series of quotations. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6 talks about this. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's been a while, so it's probably time for a reminder. When I say I'm a sheep, you say I'm a sheep. Now flopping your arm back like a sheep trying to fruitlessly pull a burr out of its wool, that's totally optional. But when I say I'm a sheep, you say I'm a sheep. I'm a sheep. Jesus doesn't say, I bless your straying. Just keep doing what you were doing when I found you. Peter doesn't say, just act naturally and try to be nice. They both say, the good shepherd has come for you. When you follow him, it means changing the way you interact with all the world around you, from the highest and mightiest to the most mundane. He hasn't just made us alive. He's saved us a heavenly seat in his party. He hasn't just promised pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. He's promised a new way of living that he modeled and that he's the one who empowers. And it all comes back to this. When you say you follow Christ, are you really ready to live the way he's called you to? Now, I mentioned earlier that we have been watching the old TV series 24. I joined Karen in watching it sometimes, and I find myself saying the most awful things. 
Some evil character is enjoying intimidating some undecided or good character, and I'm like, shoot him in the knee! So I'm apparently a pragmatist about TV show politics. That's not Jesus' example. It's also not God's plan. He didn't send Jesus so we could live a better life right now. And so I gotta make sure that everything is the way it should be and that evil guy gets, gets taken care of. We are saved to praise him and we're made righteous to testify of his work. God sent Jesus so we could know him forever, live with him forever, serve him forever, enjoy him forever. We don't wait until either progress perfects the world or Jesus returns. We live right now as foreigners here, as temporary residents, an embassy of the King of God on earth. Let's pray. God, I am so grateful that you don't expect us to do this stuff by our own strength, that we don't need to be persuaded that it's gonna be good for us in the short term, that we get to put our entire trust in who you are and what you've done. We get to realize that our value and our life's value comes from you and that you've got a bigger plan than simply today for us. So would you empower us today to confront the things that are difficult for us about what Peter is calling us to? Would you call us into this in a way that allows us not just to confront the difficulties that we have with some of these things, but also to be persuaded that it's your will that we follow them? God, I I'm so grateful for the people of Church of the Valley, for the love that I see them showing to each other. And I'm so grateful for the way in which so many have stories of interacting with those outside. And I pray that you would continue to grow us in each of these difficult areas so that we would be people who give honor where honor is due and love where love is to be bestowed. And I pray that that wouldn't be powered by our effort, but by the accomplished work of Jesus, because the healing that he has already paid for is the healing of the defective heart that we were born with. And so I pray that you would be glorified in what our hearts and our minds and our bodies do, because we are under your authority and we submit gladly to it out of loving fear and awe for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.